Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not, they, they shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture is clear that the way to recover from sin is simply to identify that sin to God the Father, to acknowledge it, to admit it through silent prayer, using the principle of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At that instant, we are restored to fellowship. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can resume our spiritual advance. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity to gather together as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to study your word this morning. You have revealed your word to us. This is infallible truth. It is was originally written without error and has been preserved down through the centuries for our edification and growth. We are to grow spiritually by the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that knowledge comes only through your word, which is truth. Therefore, we are As Jesus prayed, sanctified by truth, your word is truth. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study, that we might be challenged, grow in a greater understanding of your plan and purposes for this church age and for our own spiritual lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 14, and we continue our study on regulations and the purpose and the regulations for the gift of tongues. And last time we stopped just in the middle of our study on the purpose of tongues in verse 21. Let's remember the context. Chapter 14 is the third chapter in a three-chapter section on the spiritual gifts where Paul is having to correct the misapplication, misunderstanding, and misperception of the spiritual gifts by the Corinthian church. Remember, he is addressing a church that is the most carnal church in the New Testament period. These people have more problems. They have distorted and confused more doctrine than any other church in the New Testament period. Nevertheless, despite the fact that they were overloaded with all kinds of sins, arrogance, divisions, schisms, all manner of personality uh, 
divisions where they were aligning themselves with different individuals instead of with the Lord and with doctrine. They are still a group of believers, and despite all of that, they were claiming to be more spiritual than anybody else. And this is not unlike the modern Pentecostal charismatic movement that claimed to recover a lost doctrine. Always be aware of that. Whenever you hear somebody saying they've recovered some lost doctrine, uh, you need to evaluate that. There are, of course, times in history when that has occurred. For example, at the Reformation, we have the recovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And that was clearly taught in the early church. But once you had the, in, uh, the influence of allegorical interpretation infiltrate the church in the late uh, 3rd century or middle to late 3rd century A.D., roughly the period from about 250 to 300, uh, you also had the introduction into the church of ritualism and sacramentalism and a works righteousness. This has always been a problem for people and, and still is for many, many unbelievers. They just can't understand why it is that they're not good enough to somehow impress God. But the scriptures clearly teach that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That is, even the best that we can do is nothing more than filthy rags in the sight of God because God's absolute standard is his character, which is perfect righteousness. And so the scriptures teach that our righteousness must come from somewhere else. There is no possible way that man on his own can accumulate anything that is valuable to God, anything that that God will approve. So, therefore, God designed a perfect way of salvation, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins, so that when we trust in him alone, God the Father imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Divine righteousness is imputed to us, and on the basis of that, God declares us to be just. It is a legal concept. It is not an experiential concept. It, and this was the recovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's pure grace. Man doesn't do anything to earn or deserve or merit salvation. He does nothing to gain or acquire God's approbation. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything that man performs, any morality on the part of man. It has to do only with what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So there's one example of a recovery of a doctrine in Scripture. And you could say that there were other doctrines down through uh, the period of time in, or the post-Reformation period that were recovered simply because man was going back once they had recovered the principle of, litera- of, of literal, grammatical, historical interpretation, then many of the doctrines that were held in the early church, even though they were held in a somewhat let's say, a naive or unsophisticated manner. They, they hadn't had the time to really think through all of, the, all of the implications of many doctrines or to analyze them, but they, they clearly held them by the things that they said. And once they got away from literal interpretation, all of this got lost and was recovered through the Reformation and post-Reformation period. But that is not true about these doctrines of the Holy Spirit that... Came to, be, came to characterize 
the either the holiness movement or its child, the Pentecostal charismatic movement. In fact, that it, there are so many parallels, as we have studied, between the modern Pentecostal charismatic movement and the and the problems in ancient Corinth, that it is amazing that you don't have more people aware of this. The, the overlap is, is more than obvious. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul gives the principles related to the importance of spiritual gifts, and he lists various spiritual gifts. Then in verse 13, or in chapter 13, he puts the emphasis where it belongs, which is spiritual growth as represented by the ultimate spiritual virtue, which is love. And in the midst of his discourse on love in chapter 13, he mentions that tongues will cease, that is, this spiritual gift of languages, not ecstatic gibberish, but speaking in legitimate human languages, uh, that wh- where the person had not gone through the normal learning process, all of a sudden, in a miraculous way, he was able to speak German or speak a Coptic or speak uh, some sort of uh, Aramaic dialect or uh, per- ancient Persian or whatever the language may have been. It was a, a miraculous, instantaneous ability. This ability would cease, according to 1 Corinthians 13.8, and other miraculous gifts, which are classified as temporary gifts, would were also said to be abolished. They, that if something would happen, classified as the complete in verse 10 of chapter 13, that when that which is complete, not perfect, that's a terrible translation of the Greek word teleos, but that which is complete has come, then that which is partial will be abolished. So the argument is clear in chapters 13, 8 to 13, that certain virtues in the spiritual life continue through the church age. There are certain spiritual gifts that continue through the church age, but certain gifts were designed to get the church out of diapers, as it were, historically during the apostolic period. Now, the, one of the difficulties in interpreting chapter 14 is that it is addressed to a historical problem in a historical context dealing with the operation and function of certain spiritual gifts that are no longer operational. So we do not have a clear understanding of just exactly what was going on in the Corinthian church, and most of what we know is inferred from what is stated in this chapter. One of the problems, apparently, was that they would all come together and in the same manner as what happened in their background, remember I've made the point again and again, that in their pagan background they were involved in mis- the mystery religions, whether it was the uh, illusion uh, mysteries or whether it was the Bacchus mysteries or the Sibylle Attis cult or one of, any of these various mystery uh, cults that operated in the ancient world. When they were involved in this, they would go up into the various worship centers where they would usually get drunk or get involved in this in some kind of dancing that would get them into work them up into some sort of ecstatic state and then everybody would just sort of uh, as they reached that ecstatic state on their own then they would 
they would speak in tongues or they would pass out or they would go into some sort of ecstatic trance. And it happened all at the same time, and everybody was just speaking at the same time, and everybody was doing whatever they did on their own. And the emphasis was not on order. The emphasis was not on what was going on with each individual or what they were learning. It was just on each individual's experience. Nothing mattered more than that the individual experienced uh, this for their own. So it was a scene usually of some disorder and chaos, and these carnal Corinthian Christians brought that baggage and that frame of reference with them when they came into the church, and so they were confusing the biblical gift of speaking in languages with this uh, pseudo-tongues, this ecstatic gibberish that they had practiced in their paganism, and their uh, worship services were de- uh, degenerating into the same kind of confusion and self-absorbed practice that they had been used to in their in their pagan worship. So Paul is correcting this, and the first 19 verses, actually the first 25 verses, all revolve around the same central theme that what's important is edification, not speaking in tongues. What is important, what is more important is the gift of prophecy because prophecy communicates in the person's own language. It communicates content. It communicates doctrine. It communicates information that is necessary for the individual to grow and advance to spiritual maturity. And if someone is speaking uh, in tongues as it was practiced in the Corinthian congregation, then it was then nobody knew what was going on, and there could be no edification because spiritual growth is based on thought. It's based on learning. It's based on exchanging the human viewpoint in our soul for divine viewpoint, and that means you have to learn something. You have to understand the concepts, and if you can't understand what's being said, then you can't grow and you can't advance. So... That's the main idea. The other thing that I've noted that is very important is that the word translated tongues is the Greek word glossa, G-L-O-S-S-A. And it occurs in this passage in the singular and in the plural. When it is the gift of tongues with that plural ending, Paul is talking about the legitimate practice when it is in the singular and all you have is speaking in a tongue then it he is referring to their illegitimate practice with two exceptions which come later on in the chapter we may get there this morning and it the only reason it's in the singular is because it's a it's a different context than what you have in the earlier part of the chapter number one and number two He has to put it in the singular because of the rules of grammar in those passages because he's talking about what one individual does. And one one individual wouldn't speak in tongues. You would only speak in one language at a time. You can't speak in more than one language at a time. So in order to fit the parameters of grammar and syntax, there are two exceptions. But this is the general, general breakdown. Now, in verse 20... He begins to emphasize that there is a purpose for the gift of tongues, the legitimate 
supernatural gift of speaking in uh, human languages that one had not learned had a purpose. And if it's not operating within the framework of that purpose, then it should be shut down. He's going to also give various regulations concerning the practice of or utilization of the gift. And if that those aren't followed, then it should not be allowed. And so what you would discover is even if, let's just take an argument, just an argument for the sake of argument, a supposition for the sake of argument, even if the uh, legitimate biblical gift of tongues were valid for today and were to continue to have continued down through the centuries, the way it is practiced in 99.999% of charismatic Pentecostal churches today isn't legitimate either. And so it can't be of God. If it doesn't follow God's regulations, it can't be from the Holy Spirit. Therefore, none of their practices, you can, I mean, it is so, I mean, it applies almost across the board that this is not practiced according to any of these regulations. So let's go back and look at the purpose. Isaiah, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding, However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In other words, he's just saying grow up in your understanding of doctrine. And then he makes the application in verse 21. In the law, and the term law here is simply a summary term for the Old Testament. Sometimes the Jews use the word law to refer to just the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch or the Torah. In other cases, The word law referred to the entire Old Testament. In the law it is written, and this is a quote from Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. So this is a quote from Isaiah 28, 11, and the last part of Isaiah 28, 12. So let's turn to the Old Testament in order to understand the significance and background of that particular quotation. We began this last time, and I noted that Isaiah 28 was actually written after the fall of the northern kingdom. Remember, after Solomon died, Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was known as Israel and was comprised of ten tribes, Also, and the capital was Samaria, so sometimes it was also known as Samaria, and the key tribe was Ephraim. So the northern kingdom is also known as Ephraim. The southern kingdom is called the kingdom of Judah, comprised of two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, the capital is Jerusalem. The northern kingdom was politically destroyed, decimated and destroyed in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom did not go out under divine discipline until 586 B.C. Now, Isaiah is writing chapter 28 approximately 705 
some 17 years after the northern kingdom has gone out under discipline. He is writing in the southern kingdom. But the first eight or nine verses, the first nine, let's say ten verses, eleven verses, deal with an earlier prophecy that was uttered probably in 723 B.C. This was an older prophecy that had been uttered that Isaiah is bringing back and reminding the southern kingdom of this earlier prophecy that he had announced against the northern kingdom, and then he is applying this same prophecy to Judah. In other words, he is saying in this in this prophecy, remember what I told, what I said about the northern kingdom. Remember the judgment that God brought against them. The same thing is now happening in Judah, and the same thing will happen to you if you don't uh, get back with the Lord, if you don't change your ways. So there is a woe pronounced in verse 1, woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. And the drunkards of Ephraim does not refer to the fact that there is a problem with alcohol abuse in the northern kingdom generally, but the fact that this was this characterized the priests and the prophets in the false religious system in the north. They had no hope. They were teaching a false system and they were just concerned with their own with their own pleasure and with their own partying. And this is just a sign of the deterioration and degeneracy that comes when a nation gets away from the Lord. You see this over in Russia and Ukraine when I travel over there. And we've seen this as long as I've gone over there. Under the communist system, it destroyed all hope. It destroyed all reason and purpose for living. And the level of alcohol abuse over there is just incredible. And there are... uh, I would say at least 50, 60% of the male population over there are alcoholics. And this is a, uh, just deter- destroys a culture from the inside when you wipe out the male uh, leadership. And one result of that is that you see women stepping into the vacuum over there. And once again, so you see a very strong uh, population among the women. And this shifts your leadership base, and again, that does not provide a sound uh, basis for cultural development. When you have no culture has ever successfully stabilized with a in a with a matriarchal basis, it is always self-destructive and has been down through history. Although you always have modern feminist scholars who seek to prove the obvious, they never have been able to prove the prove I mean prove the opposite. They never have been able to prove the opposite. So this woe is announced because the religious leadership of the north is just characterized by their own uh their own drunkenness. And this is then picked up in verse seven. And the speaker in verse seven is Isaiah. And he is being critical of these religious leaders. He says, but they also have erred through wine. That is, they're getting drunk, and they're doing the same kind of thing, probably, that was going on in Ephesus and was going on in Corinth in the mystery religions, and they were 
using wine to get intoxicated, and then in that state of drunkenness, they were using that to try to get into some kind of a spiritually enhanced state where God would speak to them. So they also have erred through wine. The erring has to do with communication of false doctrine. They're getting drunk. They're having some kind of religious experience while they're drunk, and then they're communicating their visions, sort of like the uh, American Indians, oh, Native Americans. You know, I'm not politically correct. Uh, the American Indians would go out and, and chew on the peyote buttons until, and everybody would get high. It's like the Comanches would sit around inside the a tent, and they would get all of the various war chiefs together, and the highest war chief would get the peyote button first, and he would chew on it to uh, draw out the hallucinogenic drugs there, and then he would pass it to the next person and the next person, and they would each chew on it, and the lowest man on the totem pole would get it last. And then they would have various visions, or they would go out on uh, as young men on initiatory fasts where uh, they were praying for some sort of vision, and all of this was part of the demonism that was prevalent throughout all of the North American uh, Indian tribes uh, up until the time that they were finally defeated. That was one of the reasons God destroyed those tribes. You'll never get that in any kind of American history class that you you take today. They stay away from anything like that. But if you want to get some idea of just how demonic the North American Indian tribes were, I would suggest a series of historical novels written by a man by the name of Alan Eichert, I believe, E-I-K-A-R-T or A-R-D-T. And he taught history. I can't remember where he taught history. But for years he taught American history, dealing with the American West. And in this series of novels that he writes concerning the period from the middle 18th century, 1750s, the French and Indian Wars, all the way up through the early 1820s and the the, uh, Tecumseh uh, uprising, he deals with uh, how life truly was among the Indians. And he... It's a historical novel in the sense that he writes it in a more dramatic fashion as opposed to being like history, but he doesn't make up dialogue. As a history professor, he's researched all the all the diaries and all the logs and all the letters of people who lived at that time and the key figures at that time. So the thoughts that he puts into their heads and the words that he puts into the mouth uh, are all substantiated by what they said in their diaries and in their letters. So they're ex- it's extremely accurate history, and he portrays just how violent and how demonic the religious systems were. And this is not somebody who has any kind of, of Christian axe to grind or anything like that, but if you want to see that in all of its ugliness, then that's a good source. And this is the same kind of thing that happens in every false religion. And they find there all all these various methodologies to use uh, drugs or hallucinogenic drugs or alcohol to try to get into some sort of religious state. And this is what was going on in the northern kingdom of Israel. They also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drinker out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drinks. So they, they're getting drunk and coming up with various religious visions and ideas, and then they're teaching that to the people and leading them astray. 
uh, Isaiah goes on the second half of, of uh, verse 7. They're out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. So it's a graphic picture of this. the result of their drunkenness as they get together and make themselves physically ill through drunkenness and it just pictured a horrible scene. Then there is a response in verses 9 and 10, and as Isaiah is speaking, now he quotes these false teachers and how they are ridiculing his own teaching. And their response to Isaiah's challenge was, whom will he teach knowledge? He being Isaiah. Whom will he teach knowledge? Who does he think he is to teach anyone? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breasts? And see, they're accusing him of just teaching a, a, a message that's only fit for babies or children, but not something for adults. See, this is the same kind of garbage you hear from liberal theologians today, that those myths of Christianity are just good for children. But we're mature, sophisticated 21st century Americans, so so we are more knowledgeable. We know that these kinds of things really couldn't take place. Why would you want to believe the Bible? That's just a myth for children. So you see the same kind of thing happening whenever people reject the Bible. They always have to ridicule the message of the Bible. And then in verses, uh, verse 10, they use a little word play uh, in order to mimic and ridicule Isaiah. And in the Hebrew it reads, Saul saw, Saul saw, call a call, call a call. So you see it's just a just a, a ridicule. You can hear it even though you don't know the Hebrew. Even though you, you, you don't know it, you can hear how they just create this simple little uh, mimic with a certain amount of uh, alliteration in order to mock Isaiah's teaching. And what it is, the way it is translated literally is do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule. And I like the translation in the, in the uh, New King James better for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. This is a standard way of, of teaching. You build one concept upon another, but verse 10 is not Isaiah speaking. It is a ridicule of what Isaiah had taught, and that is often what happens today is when you get out there in many, many churches, most of them today, they would rather come together and sing a lot of praise and worship songs and all go away feeling good than to spend an hour or more concentrating on the teaching of the Word of God so they can actually learn something, learn how to think biblically, and live their spiritual life. So there is a tremendous uh, rejection today, even in among Christians, on the teaching of doctrine. They would rather just go and feel and experience, which just shows that they're as postmodern as the unbeliever outside the walls, and they don't really want to change biblically, because the Bible says that if we're going to advance as believers, we cannot be conformed to the world. That means you have to quit thinking like a postmodern pagan. And if you don't realize that all your life you've been inculcated with postmodern paganism and that to some degree each of us 
thinks and responds like a postmodern pagan. And if you're not willing to do the hard work to figure out how you think like a postmodern pagan and get rid of that thinking so that you can be a consistent Christian thinker, then you have no business coming to church because you're just fooling yourself with uh, with and drugging your own mind into thinking that somehow because you go and sing these praise and worship choruses that you're really worshiping God. You cannot worship God other than by means of the Holy Spirit and truth. And when you are taking, like, for example, what happens in most of these praise and worship choruses, when you are taking Scripture and setting it to a music that is that's whole form and structure comes out of a post postmodern pagan concept of music, then what you're doing is trying to take the Word of God and blend it with human view with a human viewpoint methodology. You're you're blending truth with error in order to produce a certain goal that isn't biblical, and that is not worshiping God in truth, and it is just uh, a waste of time spiritually. Same kind of thing was happening in Isaiah. So now there is a warning, the warning of judgment from Isaiah in verse 11. For with stammering lips and another tongue, this is another language, he that is God will speak to this people. In other words, Isaiah is saying, you wouldn't listen to me when I was communicating to you in your native Hebrew. Therefore, God is going to judge you, and you're going to be instructed by foreigners in a foreign language, one that is going to sound harsh to your ears. With stammering lips and another language, he will speak to this people, this people to whom he has said, this is rest with which you may cause the rest to weary. That line characterizes the message of Isaiah. If you want real rest, real inner happiness, real peace in life, that only comes because you have, first of all, trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and secondly, because you are responding to the teaching of the Word of God and applying it into your life. And that is the source of refreshment. <clears throat> so the message of Isaiah is summarized, and this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet the conclusion, yet they would not hear. Now that last phrase, yet they would not hear, is the phrase from verse 12 that is picked up by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. So Paul simply quotes verse 11 and the last phrase of verse 12, indicating that despite the sign of judgment, and the warning of judgment that Isaiah announced to the southern kingdom, they refused to listen as the, as the northern kingdom did, and they eventually went out under divine judgment. Now, this principle that judgment would come in the form, and the warning of judgment would come in the form of hearing instruction. Now, notice I'm not defining the instruction. The Assyrians aren't going to be instructing them with, with the Word of God, but they will be dictating policy to them. And even though the southern kingdom was not destroyed by the Assyrians, they were invaded by the Assyrians eventually when they surrounded Jerusalem and put it under siege during the time of Hezekiah. You have the miraculous deliverance when the angel of the Lord wiped out the armies of Sennacherib as they were uh, 
encamped before the walls of Jerusalem, and God did deliver them. But there was a period of time when they were under the oppressive control and dominance of the Assyrian uh, people. But this principle goes back to the Mosaic Law. So hold your place here, and let's turn to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49. In Deuteronomy 28, we have a series of warnings of judgment on the nation. They are defined as sometimes as curses. Now, all a curse is in the Old Testament, it's not like some sort of black magic curse that God pronounces on somebody. A curse, the word curse, simply means the consequences of condemnation. If you disobey God, these are the judgment consequences that will come to you. And so Deuteronomy 28, 15 and following deals with various categories of divine judgments that will come upon the nation if they disobey God and disobey His, disobey the Mosaic law. And in verse 49, there is the warning. Let's say, uh, let's go back to verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies. This is a warning of the fifth cycle of discipline. Therefore you shall serve your enemies. What I mean by the fifth cycle of discipline is there were four, there were five series or cycles of judgment that God announces here in Deuteronomy 28 as well as in Leviticus 26 that each successive cycle was more intense and more extreme culminating in the fifth cycle, which meant that Israel as a nation would be taken out of the land that God had promised to give them for a period of time for judgment. If they could not obey him, then God would remove them from the place of blessing physically. So in verse 48, Therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. That's verse 50. The point that we're emphasizing is that they would be overwhelmed by a nation whose language they would not understand. Another passage that relates to the same principle of judgment is in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 15. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 15. This is written some uh, 100 years or more after the Isaiah passage is a warning to the southern kingdom of impending judgment there. And Jeremiah writes, Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. In other words, you will hear in the streets of Jerusalem, My holy city, says God, a city that should be dominated by the language of the Hebrews. You will hear the language of foreigners, a language you don't understand, and the hearing of that Gentile language in your streets will be a sign of judgment. It is not what is said, 
it is that they have Gentile languages in God's city in the promised land of Israel. This is the sign of judgment. So Paul picks up on the principle of Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, and he says this is the principle of the gift of tongues in the New Testament. Now, why did this happen? I've been thinking about this the last couple of weeks in some ways I hadn't thought about it before. And let me suggest this. I don't have a map to put up here this morning of the of the Mediterranean, so we'll just rough out. This is the Mediterranean Sea. This area over here is the land of Israel. You have an area up here of uh, Turkey and Asia Minor. Over here you have Greece and Rome. Down here you have Egypt and the Nile River. And then in this direction you have uh, the various nations of Assyria, later Persia, and Parthia. Now, after the 586 dispersion, Jews ended up going to all the areas of Asia Minor, over to Rome and Greece, down into Egypt, and of course there were large colonies of Jews in, excuse me, in Persia and Parthia. Jews are now scattered throughout Gentile languages. Only a small number returned to Israel in the return under Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah. So you still had, during the period known as the Diaspora, in the uh, period from roughly 400 B.C. to the time of Christ, you have large colonies of Jews living all over the ancient world. They are living in the midst of Gentile cultures, listening to Gentile languages. Now, why suddenly... In the gift of tongues, would that be a, or the gift of languages, would that be a sign of judgment? How can you make hearing Gentile languages a sign of judgment? Only by making it miraculous. That suddenly people who didn't know these other languages are speaking those other languages. That's what's going to grab their attention. Because otherwise, if you're, li- if you're a Jew living in Athens or a Jew living in Rome or in Babylon, or in Alexandria and Egypt, you were hearing various Gentile languages day in and day out. It's no, nothing special, no sign of judgment. But on the day of Pentecost, suddenly you had a group of men in Jerusalem, God's city, speaking in a miraculous way all manner of Gentile languages to those who had, those Jews who had come back on pilgrimage for the uh, Pentecost uh, feast day, and they're going to hear the marvelous works of God. That's what the text says. It doesn't define it as the gospel. It says they, they told them of the marvelous works of God. That probably included the gospel, but it could have included many other things as well. It's not that tongues was given for evangelism. It is given as a sign of judgment that Israel is a is about to be taken out in judgment, in the fifth cycle of judgment, because of their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. And that occurred in A.D. 70. Under the armies of Titus and the Romans, they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and the nation of Israel no longer existed. And the sign of that judgment was the same sign that was a sign of judgment to the northern kingdom 
and to the southern kingdom in the ancient world, and that was the sign of hearing Gentile languages where they wouldn't have expected it. And so this is what Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 14. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 21, Paul quotes this and says, With men of other tongues and other lips, other languages and other strange lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. And the Jews refused to respond to these signs of judgment. They had a real opportunity, even after Pentecost, to accept Jesus Christ as Messiah. And it seems from Scripture, remember when Jesus came, well, first of all, when John the Baptist came as the forerunner, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you change your ways now, change your thinking now about who Jesus is and about how to have a relationship with God based on grace, then the kingdom will come. This promised messianic kingdom from the Old Testament will come. The Messiah is here. Jesus had the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven kingdom of heaven is at hand. The disciples had the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If they, if the Jews had changed their mind about grace instead of following the Pharisees and the Sadducees and trying to earn righteousness, if they had changed their mind, accepted Jesus as the Messiah, the kingdom would have come in in the first century. They still appear to have that opportunity. Acts 3 In Peter's preaching, he says, if you respond, the times of refreshing will come. That's an an allusion to millennial blessing. And up until 70 A.D., there's this sign or warning of judgment in in tongues that God's going to judge you unless you respond. So hypothetically, they could have changed. They could have responded, and the kingdom would have come in. They did not. As a result, the nation was taken out in judgment in 70 A.D. Now, in verse 22, Paul draws a a conclusion from this, from the passage of Isaiah. He says, Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But, contrast, prophecy is... And then I want you to draw a line in your Bible. If it says for a sign, uh, you want to take that out because that is not in the original. But prophecy is not for unbelievers, but to or for the advantage of. It's a dative of advantage for those who believe. So let's draw some a summary of this verse. First of all, it clearly states that tongues are for a sign. This is the Greek word samion, which is a word that is also used of of miracles and indicates that something signifies or is a signpost is a signpost to some it points to something else. Tongues are for the purpose of a sign, ace plus the accusative case in the Greek. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. So first point, tongues are for a sign. Second point, a sign is some event 
which is designed to warn or to confirm a promise of blessing or judgment. A sign can be for blessing or a sign can be for judgment. But a sign is going to be a, something miraculous. As we studied in our passage on Isaiah 7:14, when we studied about the virgin birth, behold, there will be a sign a virgin will conceive and give birth to a, to a child. A sign has a miraculous connotation. So a sign is some event which is designed to warn or to confirm a promise of blessing or judgment. Third point, tongues is a sign to unbelievers. Tongues is a sign to unbelievers. This does not mean it's preaching the gospel. It may include that, but it doesn't mean that it's evangelism. Second, it doesn't indicate the content of the foreign language speech at all. It simply says the hearing of this miraculous event, the speaking in Gentile languages, is a sign of judgment. All it emphasizes is the miraculous occurrence of these foreign Gentile languages to Jews, that this would be a warning of judgment. And they didn't necessarily have to be present. Obviously, they were present on the day of Pentecost. There were other events in Acts where this took place, where there were Jews present in the household of Cornelius, and there were Jews present in Acts 19. But they didn't have to be present because they would hear about it. So the first point, tongues are signs. Secondly, a sign is some event which is designed to warn or to confirm a promise of blessing or judgment. Third, tongues is assigned to unbelievers. And fourth, prophecy is not said to be a sign in this passage. Prophecy is for believers. It is for edification. That's the theme of this section, is to put the emphasis on edification, not on this pseudo-experience of of speaking in, in tongues. But the legitimate gift of tongues is for a sign to unbelievers. Therefore, he says in verse 23, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Now, Some would say, well, this seems to be a contradiction. First of all, Paul says that speaking in tongues is assigned to unbelievers. Now he's saying that if the church is assembled together and there's speaking in tongues and an unbeliever enters in, they'll say you're mad. Now, read the verse carefully. Paul is going back to his main theme of the importance of edification. He says, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, circle that word all. That's the important word here. If you are meeting together and everyone, just like you did in your pagan worship in the mystery religions, everyone's jabbering in this ecstatic gibberish, then it's a sign of bedlam and confusion. And ungifted men enter in. This is the Greek word idiotes, where you get your word idiot. I-D-I-O-T-E-S, idiotes, and it can refer to either an ungifted person or an unlearned person. And 
I would take it in the second sense that this is an unlearned person, someone who's, who's coming in and he doesn't know what's going on. He, he doesn't understand the gospel. He's not saved. He has no idea what's going on at church. He just decided to walk in off the streets and find out what these Christians are up to. And so you have ungifted men or unbelievers enter. They will say that you are mad, just absolute uh, in a frenzied rage. It's the Greek verb minomai. Minomai. It's M-A-I-M-A-I-N-O-M-A-I. Something of an onomatopoeic word. They were just in a frenzied rage, just just barely articulate. And so they, a Gentile or a Jewish unbeliever, would go away from this kind of a of a worship service, thinking that it was just another wild and meaningless ritual, and it wasn't any different from any of the other pagan rituals that they heard about in terms of the mystery religions. And that would be their their response. In contrast, Paul is saying, but if all prophesy, notice the word all again, where that would and, and prophecy, which was still operational at that time, they would be speaking in an understandable, intelligible language. But and if all were prophesying and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, an unlearned person comes in, he is convicted by all. He is convicted by all. And the word here, translated uh, convicted, in the first case, it's slightly different. It's two different words here, even though in the New King James it translates it uh, the same. The first is a the word, the Greek word, word verb, elenko. E-L-E-N-C-H-O. And the second one, is the word anachronomai. Or anachrino. Anachrino. Anachrino means to, to give an account or to be accountable. Elenco means to convince or to convict. Now, this is the word that is used in John 16, 8 to 11. John 16, 8 to 11. So hold your place here, and let's look at John 16, 8 to 11. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ... It's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of God the Holy Spirit during the church age. Verse 8, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now this is the operation of God the Holy Spirit in the process of witnessing to an unbeliever. This is what the Holy Spirit is convincing the Holy, uh, the unbeliever 
uh, in terms of the truth of the gospel. Three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. They are further defined in verses 9 to 11. Sin because they do not believe in me. So God the Holy Spirit is convicting the unbeliever that they are a sinner and they have rejected Christ. Second, of righteousness, that is that they don't have the kind of righteousness that Jesus Christ or that God the Father requires, that is perfect righteousness, and of judgment because uh, Satan has been judged and sin has been taken care of on the cross. Those are the three elements that God the Holy Spirit is emphasizing in any witnessing situation. And this is what we have in verse 24 and 25 of uh, 1 Corinthians 14, that in the context of hearing prophecy, that is divine revelation in their own language, the unbeliever is going to be uh, convinced of its truth. This is what happens through the hearing of the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof. That's elenco, for conviction. It's the Word of God that convinces you of the truth. So they hear the truth and they are convinced of it, and then it calls them to account before the judgment of God, before his righteous standard, and they realize their need for salvation. That's the thrust of verse 25. And thus, the secrets of his heart, that is, his innermost thinking, his innermost thoughts, are revealed as it stands before the judgment of the Holy Spirit. And he realizes his need for salvation, his inability to meet God's standard, and his realization of what Jeremiah the prophet said, that the heart, that is the innermost part of the soul, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. So thus the secrets of his heart, he realizes that he is a sinner before the standard of God and he needs salvation. The secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. So what Paul is saying is if you're speaking in tongues, everybody's speaking in tongues, it won't have any effect. The unbeliever will just go away, and they'll think that you're mad. That's because it's just this mad cacophony, and they're going to think it's the same thing that was going on and the pagan worship. But if in verse 25, or verse 24 and 25, if there is prophecy, they will hear the word of God, they will hear the gospel in their own language, the Holy Spirit will use the word of God to convince them of the truth. They will realize that they have, their life is accountable before God, and then they will respond positively to the gospel, trust in Christ as their Savior, and they will recognize that God is truly working in that congregation. Now, next time we'll come back, starting in verse 26, to look at the regulations for the practice of tongues and regulations in the assembly meeting of the local church, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by the truth of it, to recognize that you have a plan and a purpose throughout history, that you you have a plan of salvation, and that plan of salvation includes the uh, grace warning of impending judgment. Just as there was the grace warning of impending judgment in the ancient world to the Jews, there is the grace warning to each and every individual that without faith in Jesus Christ there is eternal condemnation. 
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture teaches that there is only one way of salvation, and that is by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, before everybody leaves...